Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Last month, we kicked off season two of our monthly Blister speaker series at Western Colorado University, where we host influential figures of the outdoor industry right here in the beautiful Gunnison Valley of Colorado. And next month, on Tuesday, November 5th, our guest will be the CEO of Moment Skis, Luke Jacobson. So you should all come out on Tuesday, November 5th for that one. And this past Tuesday at Western, our speaker was Dory Trimble, because when world-renowned climber Alex Honnold was looking for a new executive director for his Honnold Foundation, he chose Dory. And with the massive success of the film Free Solo, Dory has guided what started as Alex's small personal passion project into a rapidly growing nonprofit that works on global projects. The mission of the Honnold Foundation is to reduce environmental impact and address inequality by supporting solar energy initiatives worldwide. And in this conversation, Dory unpacks for us what that means, what it's like working with Alex, and what it's been like to be at the helm and managing the explosive growth of the Honnold Foundation. This is a terrific conversation, and I guarantee that you will appreciate learning more about Dory's work with Alex, her direction of the Honnold Foundation, and the really good advice she has to offer to anyone who would like to get involved with, or start, an organization that is committed to doing social good. Last thing, we opened our time at Western by showing a brief film of a project that the Honnold Foundation is currently involved with in Puerto Rico, and we will include a link to that video in the show notes to this episode on the Blister website. And with that, let's get to our conversation with Dory Trimble from the campus of Western Colorado University. Watching that again, what memories does that bring back? And uh, I mean, this is not a past thing for you. Like we were just sitting there and you're like, yeah, I'm actually going back and forth with, I think Arturo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Arturo just WhatsApp me like five minutes ago. So still happening. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about the state of this project, what we're seeing in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's cool to rewatch it because I mean, as you can see from the video, this like crazy parade happened. It was this incredible celebratory moment. But in a lot of ways, it was like a celebration of the very beginning of the project. Um, so after that event took place, we had to take a step back and be like, okay, what are we actually trying to build here? Because cooperatively managed solar microgrid is a really cool concept, but the details of it are like incredibly complex. Um, and so since that film was made, we've hired a full-time project manager, this woman, Cynthia Arellano, who's amazing, who's in Puerto Rico literally right now. Um, and she's been down there trying to figure out what it is exactly that the community wants and needs and how we can build a system that meets those needs. So she's doing the sort of like unglamorous, slow, mandatory work of like actual community-based development. Um, and eventually that'll lead to a solar microgrid. Wow. Now let's back up. Yep. How did you first get involved with the Honold Foundation? So the short answer is that I cold called them. Who's them? At the time, it was a like ambiguous email inbox. Like I didn't really know who I was cold calling. 
in reality, the person who I was reaching out to was this woman, Brittany Gibbons, who at the time she was like the only actual employee at the Honnold Foundation. She was like the one who checked the email. Um, She's now on our board. She's a data analyst at Tesla, but she had been an intern. And at the time, I think she was technically the director of operations. The operations were very limited, but she was directing them. Um, and so I, they were looking for interns. And I emailed them and I was like, look, I'll do your social media if that's what you need. But also, I think you need these five things. Um, and I'll do them for free. And so that's how I got started. What drew you to the foundation? I mean, you, I presume, knew who Alex Honnold was at this point. <laughs> yeah. Was it enough that you you were intrigued by the fact that this famous climber had some weird foundation or that was enough? Or you also were quite interested in the solar kind of foundation of the foundation? It was kind of neither. Like I, So when I reached out to HF, I was at this point where... I had been working like a very fancy, important job at a hospital and I was in a PhD program and I had like a good salary and good benefits and like everyone thought I was killing it and like I didn't like it. And I joke that I quit my PhD program because I didn't want to take my statistics final. And that's not entirely false. Like that was definitely a part of it, but it was a part of a bigger decision that like I didn't want to be working in healthcare. I wanted to be doing work that I felt like was having a meaningful impact on the world. I wanted something that challenged me. And so when I reached out to HF, it was like during this window of time when I was like looking for something. And um, honestly, when I reached out, it it had nothing to do with solar. Um, I thought it was really interesting that somebody like Alex was positioning himself as like this like visible philanthropist when like nobody asked him to. And like, it's not particularly in keeping with the way that you think of him. If you're a climber and you like see films with him in it or whatever, like he doesn't seem like he'd be like a really compelling philanthropist. Um, but he was doing it anyways, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, so, yeah, that's why I reached out. Is it fair to say that you reached out not, I mean, this was an inquiry. I mean, you didn't really know what you were getting into. Mm, I had, like, I don't want to say I had an agenda, but it was clear to me that the organization had a ton of untapped potential. And something that I, like, really love to do and I'm pretty good at is, like, looking at sort of nebulous problems where you're not totally sure how to put it all together into something meaningful. I'm good at figuring that out. And so my initial impression was, like, I think that there's a lot of potential here and I really want to help them figure out how to tap it because I think it's super cool. Um, And Alex has this insane platform. Um, I think from the beginning I was really inspired by the potential um, behind giving Alex the tools to to be successful at this. So... What year, what month was it when you reached out? So it was like weeks after Alex soloed Freerider. So whenever that was. I think like three years ago. Does anybody know when that was? Three years ago, maybe? You should know the answer to this. I should. I can, I can track it in the order of my life. Okay. Um, but yeah, I reached out like the same month that he soloed Freerider. Because I found out about the foundation because I was like looking at Alex stuff on the internet. Because there was like no media. Because it was all embargoed for free solo. So there were like two pictures and like four seconds of film. And so I was poking around and that's how I found the foundation. So it was like right after he sold Freerider. Yeah, which was a pretty monumental moment, right? Yeah. I mean, I very much remember exactly where I was actually when a friend of mine sent the text just saying like, dude, Alex just soloed Freerider. And uh, I imagine that a number of folks in this room remember where they were. It's funny, I've never thought about that. People ask, where were you when this certain thing happened? But that was one for me. 
Okay, so that's a big deal. And <laughs> you reach out right after and they say, sure, come on. Yeah. And so Britt emailed me back and I think I, I interviewed with the guy who was the executive director then, Mari Birdwell, who's now on our board. Um, and hadn't met Alex, like didn't have a super concrete sense of like what the objectives were, um, but just like proceeded to get after it um, and like do a lot of stuff that nobody asked me to and like probably be kind of obnoxious. And um, that fall, we had sort of collectively decided that it made sense to get everybody together in Yosemite and like make a plan. Um, because one of the things that stood out to me really early on was that like, there wasn't really a strategic vision of any kind or like a vision or a strategy or like it was all just sort of abstract. And um, when I joined the team, our mission statement was still do more better, um, which as an English major, I found personally <laughs> offensive. <laughs> um, and so that fall, I went to Yosemite and met Alex for the first time and met Mari and Britt. And we all spent a couple days together, like figuring out what was going to happen next. Mm -hmm. um, and that was kind of where things started taking off. I think it's worth saying, though, and it, it's interesting talking about these early days, and we weren't really sure what this is going to be, but I think it probably is to Alex's credit, right? I mean, he didn't know either, maybe, but you already talked about the fact that you thought this was really interesting. The platform that Alex had, which has only gotten bigger, there was a little movie came out called Free Solo. You may have heard of it, but... I think to his credit, right, and you and I have talked about this a bit, I mean, Alex is like, well, I'm, you know, things are coming up and I'm getting paid better and making more money and I don't necessarily need that. And I want to start figuring out what to do with some of these resources. And that's beyond commendable, right? No one was asking him to do this. Mm -hmm. So sounds like that was inspiration enough to get you sort of started. And it's always, I think, interesting to think about the kind of maybe humble beginnings, like sometimes start, you don't have to have the whole roadmap, yeah, right? Yeah, um, for sure. And that seems like that's kind of very much the story of the Honold Foundation and maybe you're part of that roadmap <laughs> production. Yeah, I mean like when, so the foundation actually started in 2012, which is like way before I ever touched it. And back then Alex was still living in a 40 Cono line, which is like the kind of van you can't stand up in and like it wasn't that nice. And he like had sponsors, but he so, is, does someone here live in a 40 Cono line? Yeah, nice. <laughs> I mean, they're like nice, but it's not a sprinter. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like you, he lived in a 40 Cono line and, uh, and he had sponsors, but he wasn't like, he was nothing like he is now. Like he was a famous pro climber, but this was like, that was back when being a famous pro climber still meant you were just famous to climbers. Um, but I mean, I think he kind of had the foresight to realize that like, things were going to pick up a little bit. And so when he started, he, I think he's told me that he thought his annual expenses were in the range of like 13 to 14 grand. So like all the money he spent over the course of the year, he's spending like a, like a little bit over a thousand dollars a month on his whole life and decided to give away like basically a third of his annual income, which if you think about how much money you're making, like giving away a third of it is bananas. Like I don't know anybody who gives away a third of their income besides Alex. Um, and nobody asked him to do it. It wasn't super public. Like in the beginning, he never talked about it. When I, even when I joined the team, he still didn't like talking about the foundation because he thought it was douchey. Those are, that's his word. Um, and, but what I think he really meant was that it felt like he was like talking about himself. Like it felt like he was hyping up his own scene and he didn't want to do that. And it's really just been recently that we've gotten to a place where it's like the foundation is bigger than just Alex. Like we have donors who aren't him. It's like a story that goes beyond his giving. 
And I think that makes it easier for him to talk about it. So let's talk about that because that is an element that was a big question for me, really, when you say that there are now donors that are not just him. So talk about that element of the Honold Foundation, because I have seen this actually come up quite a bit, like, am I allowed to donate to it, right? And mm-hmm. so talk, talk a bit about that aspect. Totally. Yeah, so back in the day, it was mostly Alex by an order of magnitude. Like, there are a bunch of people who were always giving who were mostly, like, friends of his or, like, a couple of his sponsors have benefit products. Like, Maxim makes a Honold signature rope, and they've been doing that for years. Now Black Diamond has a bunch of products that support our work, too, including a spatula, which is pretty rad. But yeah, so back in the day, it was mostly Alex. And then as Alex's profile increased, and as we actually started asking people to donate, things shifted radically. Just saying like, hey, if you want to give us money, you can, had like a comically large impact. Because I don't think people knew. Um, And more recently with Free Solo, like Alex isn't climber famous. He's like regular world famous. Um, And people are inspired by him. And I sometimes joke that we're like, we're trying to not be a glorified Alex Honnold fan club. There's still like a little bit of that going on. Um, But I think that people give because they're, a lot of them give because they're inspired by Alex and they believe that like he's doing something meaningful. Um, And people give too because they support solar and and they care about our work. But um, Alex is far and away the most visible thing about the Honnold Foundation. So just in case we've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves and people want to know, wait, what exactly is the mission <laughs> of the Honold Foundation? Maybe we should give you the, hmm. what's the one sentence we say about that? Yeah, well, it's like a sentence and a half. You got a sentence and a half. Okay, then. so the Honold Foundation promotes solar energy for a more equitable world. So what that means is that we provide grant funding and a storytelling spotlight and project management support to nonprofits and initiatives all over the world who are using solar energy to make people's lives better. When did that mission statement get put into place? That fall in Yosemite, when we were all sitting down together and talking about like, okay, what do we actually do? There was like some really excruciating work with a whiteboard trying to like get all the words to puzzle together in the right way. The short form of it is like promoting solar energy for a more equitable world. So we're thinking about social equity, we're thinking about environmental equity and like environmental sustainability, and we're using solar energy to uplift those goals. Define the word promoting. So it's complicated, right? Because we're not just a funder. And that was one of those verbs where we were like pulling our hair out because promoting is like kind of a terrible verb, but also we're not just funders. So it used to be that all we did was write checks. Like that was the deal. Like we funneled money to all these nonprofits who were doing solar energy access work who we thought were cool. But the Puerto Rico project that you guys saw in that film, like we have a project manager on the ground in Puerto Rico supporting that initiative. Like we've partnered with Rivian to provide them with this energy storage solution. We're working with another nonprofit to bring in solar panels. Like, we're not just a funder in that case. We're kind of like helping Casa Pueblo fit all these different puzzle pieces together. And then we show up with Alex and stand next to Arturo and all of a sudden more people listen to Arturo because Alex is there. And we get a film like this that people like you see that you might not have. I mean, like, you probably wouldn't have heard of Casa Pueblo if we didn't like get Alex in there. And so the reason why we use promoting, which again, is like not the best verb in the world is because it looks a lot of different ways. Um, And every nonprofit partner that we worked with, we support in a different way, kind of like as per their needs. Um, So yeah, it varies. Let's back up one more time. Okay. How on earth, what were you doing before in your life (laughs) that made sense why you should now be putting some of this infrastructure and the roadmap in place 
So I think you could answer that question a couple different ways, but the shortest answer is that I was in the Peace Corps, um, which um, meant that I was in the Dominican Republic for three years um, on a sugarcane plantation helping um, community leaders do um, basically develop like legal aid training programs for undocumented and stateless youth. And none of that has anything to do in particular with solar energy or Alex Honnold or philanthropy, but um, that like really in-depth experience doing community development work in a low resource setting primed me to think really critically about our partners and what they need and how they function and made me really good at listening and gave me a very high tolerance for failure um, because I don't know if you guys know anybody who's like in the Peace Corps or is thinking about it, but like if it teaches you one thing, it's like how to fail a lot, all the time. You get really, really good at failing. Um, and I think that that's an important skill for starting anything when it's like in a really baby stage. And that's where HF was when I showed up. Like we had been doing something and we wanted to get a lot bigger. And that's sort of a transition, especially when you're trying to do it in a new or different way, involves like, just like you're screwing things up all the time. And knowing how to like look at something and be like, cool, nope, that was not the way. And like hard reset and figure out a new way, um, I think has been super helpful. Hmm. But yeah. How did the Peace Corps in particular teach you how to fail a lot? It's just being a Peace Corps volunteer means nothing ever goes right. Like you like spend like a whole week planning like the most badass community meeting and like you're so stoked and you show up and literally nobody comes. Or like one person shows up three hours late because like it rained. And like, nobody says sorry. And you're like, I am so sad. Like I just dedicated so much of my life to like making this thing happen. And I mean, the work I was doing was like legal aid for undocumented youth. Like things didn't get better while I was there. And like, I left the island and they got worse and they're still bad. Um, like we weren't solving, we weren't trying to solve easy problems. And in some ways we weren't trying to solve solvable problems. Um, but that doesn't mean it isn't worth trying. So let's talk a bit about Alex Solo's Freerider, mm -hmm. you're like, I should go get involved with that foundation. You do. Mm -hmm. Talk a bit about what has the acceleration process looked like? Because there was the solo of Freerider, and then there was this film that came out. Mm -hmm. And so we, you and I have been talking about this as well. Like, even though to some of us, it now feels like that film has been out quite a while, there's still a lot of folks in this world who are just still now kind of discovering it. So talk a bit about, you know, I, I think I get the sense that there's been this kind of nuclear bomb that's gone off, but I don't have the best sense of like, if that happened, if it feels like that happened a year ago, or if it's still right in the middle of that explosion now. Yeah, explosion is a really good descriptor. It's been like total insanity. And it's, so we got like a foreboding of the explosion on that trip to Yosemite, the fall after Alex climbed Freerider. That was when, it was when I first met Alex. It's also when I first met Jimmy Chin. And like, I met Alex and like, Alex is not super intimidating. Like, he's just like a dude. Like you meet him and you're like, oh, it's Alex. And then you kind of like move on. Meeting Jimmy Chin made me very nervous. He's like <laughs> extremely cool. Um, yes. And uh, we, uh, we all went to dinner and Jimmy was chatting with us and he was like, look, like you guys have got to get your shit together. Like the movie's going to change everything. And like, I didn't know what normal was because like I had just walked into that world. But like this idea of like the movie's going to change everything, the movie's going to change everything. Like it was hard to imagine what that meant, but like it did. Like it's been wild. Um, and more so for Alex, who's like a professional corporate speaker now. 
um, and like who has an insane travel schedule and who's climbed at like every gym in the universe at this point. Um, and so like that trip to Yosemite is when we kind of like found out that things were gonna get crazy. And then a year ago approximately is when Free Solo like first premiered. And that's when things started picking up. But I mean, even now, like you can watch Free Solo on an airplane now, it's like on Delta flights. And like, that's when people really start seeing it. Um, but it's like hard to connect all the dots. Like Alex is exponentially more famous than he's ever been before. Um, and like, we're bringing in more donations. We have more major donors. We have more visibility. Brands want to work with us. Like there's all this cool stuff happening, but it's like, it's hard to figure out how it all fits together. Um, but like, I'm pretty darn sure that it's because Alex is a famous person now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so now you have Alex as a famous person. So what is a typical week look like for you? If there is such a thing as a typical week, like how are you spending your time now? <laughs> um, it changes constantly. Like the rate of change is I think the most alarming thing about being on like the rocket ship that is Alex's rise to fame. So some weeks I'm like in Puerto Rico supporting Cynthia or supporting our work there. Um, some weeks I am taking like an endless stream of phone calls. Um, I spend a lot of time working with, we have two employees now, um, Kate Trujillo, who's our director of programs, and then Cynthia who's working in Puerto Rico. So I spend a lot of time working with them. Um, but I also spend a great deal of time doing like very unappealing but mandatory admin work because like we're still building an organization on some level. Like when I showed up, we didn't really have like the sca the nonprofit scaffolding to like hang programs off of or like build staff into. Like we were still just kind of an idea. And so I spend a lot of time like thinking about how we want to structure the organization. And I spend a lot of time sending emails. Mm -hmm. What's been the best part of the explosion? I mean, we're able to do crazy stuff now. Like this project in Puerto Rico, like assuming that it all plays out the way we think it will, like it's going to be pretty amazing. Um, Cynthia is working with the business association in this town at Juntas to develop a nonprofit called Accessa, which is their like solar energy um, cooperative group. And we're going to put the whole central plaza on a solar microgrid. They're talking about like disaster resiliency plans to help people in the community like store their insulin in fridges if like the power goes out. They're talking about public charging stations and figuring out like systems to feed the community when there's no power anyplace else. Like that kind of a project that requires like really significant partners, partners like Rivian, um, people who can like tell the story and draw more attention to it and make it precedent setting for other places on the island. Like, I mean, like those projects are expensive and they require attention and like engagement. And I don't really think we could have pulled something like that off before. And so the fame itself, it's like now Alex like has people fan spot him when he's in the men's restroom and like that sucks for him. But the flip side of it um, is that we're able to do stuff like that Puerto Rico project, which like I think really will end up having a positive impact on people's lives. What's the most challenging part of the explosion? Oh, it's like, <laughs> it's like if you woke up, it's like every morning you wake up and you realize that there was a deadline that you forgot a week ago. And every morning there's a new one that was also due a week ago. Like we're so surrounded by like crazy opportunities that it's, it's literally impossible to keep up. Hmm. It would have been really cool if our organization was at a point in its growth that it's at now, like five years ago, but like we just didn't know. Um, and so 
yeah, it's like a forest of low-hanging fruit and you're just like desperately trying to get as much as you can, hmm. which is a good problem. Yeah, and I mean, do you get the sense that you know, people are reaching out, companies, corporations are reaching out, they'd like to be involved. When you say you're missing these deadlines, are you worried like that that ship is going to sail? It's hard to tell. I mean, we talked a little bit about this and like I've never been this close to a famous person before. Like I've had no real interaction with like fame or what it, it does. Mm. And like as far as I can tell, it's just super mysterious and extremely unpredictable. But like I thought that this was kind of going to stop. Like I thought that like the Alex fame train was going to like stop at some point and people were going to stop caring and we could like move on. And it's increasingly evident to me that that's like not really how it works. And so in a similar vein, like I don't think that the oppor- the rate of opportunities coming towards us is necessarily going to change. It's just that the opportunities themselves do. They kind of get bigger. And I think that like me as the executive director and the organization as a whole, we get better at telling the difference between like what's important and what isn't. Mm-hmm. So you need to grow the team. Mm-hmm. Is this something, are you guys actively trying to do this right now? Yeah. So this summer I learned how to be an HR department and then I was an HR department and hired two people. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're never going to be like a, like, we're never going to be like a brick and mortar foundation with like a team of 15 and like four program officers. Like we're never going to be what you imagine when you like imagine a foundation. It's still very, why not? Well, because I don't think that that necessarily meets our goals. Like we could do that because that's what you think of when you think of a foundation, but I don't think it's necessarily the right solution. Like we're trying to build an organization that actually centers our grantees that takes somebody like Casa Pueblo and says like, okay, what does Casa Pueblo want and need? And how can we build an organization that makes it super easy to give them what they want and need? Because like, it's not really about the Honold Foundation. We like slap our name on things because it draws in more donors and that lets us fund Casa Pueblo at a higher rate. But I think that it's not that there's anything wrong with that traditional model. It's just that that's all it is, is a traditional model. It doesn't mean it's the best way or the right way. And so we're trying to figure out the best way for what we're trying to do. So what's the dynamic like between you and Alex, like working with Alex? It's good. I like Alex. And if I didn't like him, I couldn't do this job. Um, we talk on the phone a lot. He's actually very chatty on the phone. He's like a good phone talker. Hmm. Um, we probably talk on the phone like once or twice a week, most weeks. Um, and I see him usually once a month, sometimes more. Um, Alex says exactly what he means. Like he doesn't ever mince words about anything, which I find delightful because it means I never have to guess. Um, and like, He also doesn't, if he doesn't say anything, it either means he doesn't care or he doesn't think it's important. So you can just do whatever you want. Um, I like recently texted him and I was like, I'm going to be in Vegas. Can I stay at your house? And he just didn't text me back. And I was like, well, I assume that means yes. Because like, because if he said. I thought you were going the other way. No, no, that means yes. Because he definitely read it. And he was like, oh yeah, I don't need to respond to that. Of course you can. He would respond if he needed to give me information. But like that communication style obviously does not work for everyone. (laughs) And, uh, but it works for me. Um, and he's like deeply involved in our work and like really cares about it. Um, and so, yeah, it's like fun for the most part. So I want to talk about that. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that's great to hear that he's deeply involved, that he really cares, but as there are more resources, as there are more opportunities, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's fair to say that this kind of started as a pet project for Alex, well, we're maybe already not there anymore. And how are you currently thinking about 
and vetting potential projects. Mm -hmm. And talk a bit, I know you're working on that and putting some mechanisms in place and the rest, but talk about that. Like, so we have Casa Pueblo mm -hmm. and what else? I mean, is it, is it scattershot? Does it feel random right now? Mm -hmm. Talk about that selection of process for projects and where you think you might be able to make a, make a good impact. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And like, honestly, I'm still figuring out the answer. Like, when I joined the team, it really was like, I mean, Alex found our first grantees with Google. He was like, what's a cool organization doing solar energy work? And he found Grid Alternatives. And like, good news, Grid Alternatives is badass and we still fund them. Like, they're amazing. And like, it's a privilege to support their work. But like, Alex literally just Googled some stuff and was like, this seems legit and started giving them a lot of money. And so we've been slowly transitioning to something like a little bit more structured because now we're not just spending Alex's money, we're spending money from donors, like from individual people who care about our work. Um, Casa Pueblo and Arturo, who you saw in the video, like I reached out to Arturo. I was like, Casa Pueblo is doing really cool work. We want to help you. Like, what can we do to support your work? Um, we recently funded a project in Detroit that we found in a similar way. It was like word of mouth, human connections, like recommendations, all that stuff. But that's not scalable. Um, and like I was joking with someone recently that like, you know, like Arturo like texted me a picture from his daughter's wedding at like 8 p.m. on a Sunday. And like, that's awesome. Like I consider Arturo a friend, but also like that's not scalable. Like the executive director being buddies with the directors of every organization we fund is not the path forward. And so um, Kate, who's our new director of programs, a big part of what she's doing is like helping us build an infrastructure that will scale as the resources we have access to scale. Um, because like, it's just not, we, we can't just keep Googling things. Even though sometimes it leads to awesome projects like Casa Pueblo, it's like, we gotta get more structure in place. So we're figuring that out right now. Um, but it's a cool opportunity to try and think of how we can do it in a new way. Like how do we make sure that organizations who might you know, not have like an accountant, so they can't put together a budget. Like, how do we make sure that they can still solicit funds from us? Like, really eliminating the barriers to funding for small nonprofits is something I'm really stoked about. Let's talk about Alex as a revenue generator. For He's the a really foundation. good one. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys have internal conversations, or has he ever sort of said anything, maybe kind of more quietly to you, about a kind of pressure to keep up? I mean, I, I don't know that it's possible to do anything sort of more beyond mm. free soloing, free rider, but is this a conversation about, or is there a concern about like, we need to make sure that, you know, he is staying on that cutting edge or staying in that limelight to continue. That, that seems like a, I don't know if unfair is the right word, but an unfortunate kind of pressure if there is such a thing or is that part of the conversation? Kind of. I mean, like, I've stood in the audience or near Alex, like, a lot of Q&As. And he always gets, like, the same 10 questions. And one of the questions is, what's next? And I've heard him answer it a lot of different ways. But a common thread is, like, he usually says, I don't know, at some point. And just sort of like, well, like, I don't know. Like, maybe this. Like, I've been sport climbing a lot. And, like, I mean, he did just climb, like, 514D. Like, he's getting after it. Um, but I mean, he also talks about the foundation when people ask him what's next. And that's in part because I was aggressively pressuring him to talk about the foundation, but I also think it's true. Um, that, I mean, I think that people asking that question is a form of pressure, right? It's like if people wanna know what's next, it's because they think it should be something similarly outrageous. I don't think that Alex is experiencing any like existential angst about like, how he could possibly top Freerider. Um, 
because it's like when you do a really amazing thing, like I think probably there's a little bit of like a, I always talk about adventure hangovers when you have like a really good weekend adventure and you come back to work on Monday and you're like, I feel ill. Like I can't possibly be here. And like, surely Alex felt something similar to that after Freerider because it's like so much culmination, this like incredible moment. And then it's like the other side. But I don't know. I mean, like climbing is what he does. Like on some level, it doesn't really matter whether or not people expect him to do something else. And like, I mean, Alex truly like does not give a shit. Like he will do what he wants. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not particularly concerned about him like doing something outrageous because of external pressures. You know, he's a grown up. He'll figure it out. (laughs) Talking about solar in general, the donors reaching out or Mm -hmm. the companies or corporations reaching out, are you finding that they themselves are just enthusiastic about the prospects of solar? Has that changed a bit? Are they like, look, we don't really know what this is, but it seems cool and, you know, you guys seem nice. Like, what's that like? I mean, Mm -hmm. in your day-to-day and with all these emails you're getting? There are two different things. One of the things is like, we love Alex Honnold. We want to support the Alex Honnold Foundation. Do you guys support climbing projects? And I'm like, no, but we'll take your money. That's like one category. And then the other category is people who are already diehard about solar. So like for the Detroit project that we just did with the North End Woodward Community Coalition, which is like basically the Casa Pueblo of Detroit, like super charismatic visionary leader doing really cool residential solar work for low-income families. Our partners on that project were REC Group who are solar panel manufacturers. So like obviously REC Group already cares about solar. And for them, it was like, oh my God, like Alex Honnold cares about solar too? Like that's so neat. Um, we don't have a lot of people in between who are like, I am like, I learned about the Hanum Foundation and that taught me to love solar. But that's something that we're working on figuring out how to do. It's a storytelling problem. It's like, how do we take people who love Alex and turn them into people who care about solar? Hmm. Um, and that's like one of our jobs. And I think we're still figuring out how to do it. Do you guys have conversations that run beyond solar or is Alex and the group focused right now? Alex is committed to solar, and so we are too. I think that as the organization grows and develops more capacity, it's possible that we'll start addressing projects that aren't solar, but that still meet our goals, that are still reducing environmental impact and improving people's lives. Um, But right now, we have enough really cool solar projects that we can just focus on that. Um, I think um, that it's my job as the executive director at this like moment in the Honnold Foundation's growth to build an organization that's like robust and resilient and like smart and designed to meet grantee needs so that if someday Alex or the board is like, yo, maybe we should think about energy access more broadly or like maybe we don't care about energy access anymore, that we can take the same organization and make that transition effortlessly. Because I think that a really smart grant-making program that centers our partners, like, it should work for anything. Yeah. Um, like, we just plug in different technical expertise if that's what it takes. Mm-hmm. But for now, we fund solar. And there is a lot of really cool solar work that needs funding still. Yeah. So talk a bit about, if you're willing to, how many projects are currently in place, or if, you, if it's more interesting to talk about how many projects are currently sort of under consideration. Mm-hmm since I like to ask multiple questions, <laughs> how many projects do you think maybe would be underway in 2020, whether that's starting new projects or 
2019 projects continued into 2020. What kind of scale are we talking about here? So our framework is basically that we have one project that's we've been calling them deep dive. So like the Casa Pueblo project is a deep dive. Like we have a project manager on the ground. We're like deeply involved. It requires a lot of work on our part. We think about having one of those a year. Um, and those are more expensive than our other projects, right? Because we're paying for staff. There's some travel involved. But also like that microgrid is not going to cost $25. Um, it's going to cost more than that. Um, so one of those is sort of like our major um, storytelling focus for the year. We also do a lot of funding around that. And then in addition to that, we have the capacity to be funding like, I mean, right now we fund, we're funding like four organizations on an annual basis. We have the capacity to be funding like eight to 10. And that's all unrestricted, which um, has anyone here like worked for a nonprofit before? Quick show of hands. Anybody? Okay. So if you work for a nonprofit, you're probably familiar with like somebody gets a grant and then it's a whole freaking nightmare because you have to report on it and you have to hire new staff to manage the grant and like nobody knows how to write anything down and you like can't pay the staff because the grant isn't for that. It's like an entire scene. So our grants are unrestricted, which means that you can spend them on paper clips or post-it notes or salaries or health insurance or direct services. And so when we look at that like big long roster of nonprofits that we could be funding, all of those nonprofits will be receiving unrestricted funds. Um, which I think is pretty cool and which really increases their capacity. So that's the vision. But in order to get that roster of like incredible nonprofits, we have to track them down. Crystal ball question. Okay. Mm, Where would you like to see the Honold Foundation in 10 years? Or you can also choose to answer the crystal ball question. Where do you just imagine it will be in 10 years. <laughs> I hope that they're close. <laughs> That's your job. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a particularly hilarious question because like at the beginning of this year, our plan was literally try it all. Like there was, a, there was an annual plan. It was more sophisticated than that. But the shorthand for the whole thing was like, do the mission, try it all. Like, let's try to be an organization and see what happens. And like, it's working. <laughs> um, and honestly, like do the mission is always what we're trying to do. Like that's the critical path. Um, when I think about where we're going to be in 10 years. I mean, the rate of change is already so outrageous. Like when I look at where we were six months ago and where we are now, um, when I look at where we were a year ago and I look at where we are now, like it is really hard to imagine what it's going to look like 10 years from now. But I think that one of the things that I do have confidence in is that like we're trying to solve an urgent problem. Like our work has to do with climate change and it doesn't benefit anybody for us to take in a bunch of donations and like put them in an endowment and sit on them. Because if we still have money 40 or 50 years from now, but the world is on fire, it doesn't matter. Like the money doesn't have any inherent value. It's what we do with it. And so I like to think that in 10 years, we'll be even better at bringing money in and pushing it out again to the people who need it. And that's really what makes Alex's role in this whole thing kind of magical is that like people like to support things he touches. And so unlike a lot of small nonprofits, we can kind of bring funds in. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, 10 years from now, like I think we'll still be funding environmental work. I think it'll probably still be energy access. And like, I hope that we're funding a lot more of it at a lot higher level. But beyond that, like, man, I don't know. That's a really good answer, I think. One of the things I want to ask is, I think it's been really cool talking with a number of Western students about this and talking to a number of college students from all different walks and schools is I definitely get the sense that students now care a lot more about either how they might get plugged into a nonprofit or start their own or 
given that we're still in kind of this, you know, hot entrepreneurship landscape, there's so much talk about, yeah, someday maybe I'd like to start my own company, but I'd really like to think through how we could be doing interesting things in terms of important social elements or doing things better on an environmental scale. And given your experience and given what you have been kind of trying to build in real time while this is all happening, what kind of lessons or takeaways or advice you might be able to give to somebody who's like, yeah, someday I might not be starting a foundation focused on solar, but there's a zillion other elements or, or foundations that need starting. What would be some of your biggest takeaways or lessons that you've learned so far? I think that it's really easy when you think about like any sort of business model to be like, the thing that I do best is like a classic example is Tom's who make like the little like cottony shoes. And it's like Tom's was good at making shoes. And so the whole one for one concept is like, well, you buy a pair of shoes, we give a pair of shoes away. And there's a lot of evidence that in many ways that didn't really work that well. Um, when I was in the Peace Corps, the community that I lived in was one of the beneficiaries of Tom's donations. And you would know every year when the shoes showed up because all the kids would be wearing these like black cotton slip-ons and they would destroy them in like a week. And the soles would melt on the asphalt. Like they were these, they were something about the plastic they used, like couldn't, it didn't work on the asphalt that the kids walked to school on. So their shoes would melt. So the shoes would last like a week. Like they were basically trash. And I think that that's like a really pure distillation of what happens sometimes when companies with really good intentions are like, we're going to give people what we have without really considering, because like they need shoes. And it's like, yeah, I mean, we all need shoes, but like, did they need your shoes? Did they ask for them? And so when I think about organizations that are doing like corporate social responsibility in a, in a really good way, this is like, I mean, it's like a deeply unsexy concept, but we work with this Salesforce consultancy called Traction on Demand. And like, whatever. Salesforce is one of those things that's like, it's in the air you breathe, but you never really know it's there. And Traction's version of corporate social responsibility is a branch of their office that provides exactly the same consulting services at a very low cost to nonprofits. And I think that's a really good example of like doing what you're best at and letting people ask for it. And so like right now, Traction's building out our Salesforce database, which we desperately needed. Um, but like we went to them and we were like, hey, we need your help. Can you help us? And then they're providing us the same service that they provide to, to paid folks. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I don't think that you need to like create a foundation if you want to do something that's good for the world. And I think that it's possible for for-profit businesses to have really positive impacts, but you've got to be so careful about assuming that you know what people need because most of the time you don't. And that's true for us too. Like we don't know what people need. Like we find nonprofits who do know, whose leaders come from the communities they serve, who do have those connections. And so there's definitely a way to do it, but I think you've got to go into it with your eyes wide open around the fact that like, it's good to want to do good and it's really bad to assume that you know how to do good because like you probably don't. Um, and I think that like listening and paying a lot of attention through that process and like being ready like to make mistakes and to correct and to change your path is like the way that you do that right. I want to ask one more question, and then it's your turn. So we will open this up for our very popular Proust versus Western segment. I think you guys know the drill, how this works by now. But um, we'll, we'll end with the, we asked the crystal ball question. We'll end with the time machine question, which is if the, the undergraduate version of yourself was sitting right out there in the audience, what one or two things do you think it would be most important to say to that 
younger version of yourself? Or what do you wish someone would have told you? I mean, like, calm down is definitely something that I wish someone had said to me. Like, it's going to be fine. Chill. You're fine. But, like, more broadly, I think that if you, like, care about the world around you and you care about doing good work and, like, you want to be, you want to make a meaningful contribution, I think those tendencies also sometimes come with a desire to do work that, like, other people think is good or, like, think is appropriate or right or, like, a good job. And basically that, like, you know what you want to do, you can do it if you try hard enough. And I know that that sounds like totally corny and ridiculous, but actually Brendan Leonard of Semirad has this like great little book about creative work called Make It Till You Make It. And one of the things in it is give it away until they can't live without it. And like, that's how, that's why I'm the executive director of the Honnold Foundation is because I gave it away until they couldn't live without it. And I think that, you know, like, Obviously, it's more complicated than that. And like, you've got to make enough money to live. And like, if you have student loans, that makes that kind of thing more complicated. But like, I think that if you make yourself indispensable and like really think critically about what organizations need and like try to try to take what you're best at and give them what they need, like you can do really cool work. I never would have gotten this job if I just applied for it. Like I got it because it like built around me. So yeah, I think the short version is like calm down and give it away until they can't live without it. Pretty good. Questions from you. And I think what we'll do here is um, if you ask the question, I will try to repeat it. So the question is, uh, have the Trump tariffs affected any of the solar work that you guys have been engaged in? Yeah, it's a good question. They haven't affected our work, but they have affected um, the costs that our partners pay to a certain extent. And they've also just like, I mean, overall, I think it ties back to the, the like atmosphere around solar in, um, in the States, which is like kind of hostile in a lot of places. Yeah, I mean, they haven't affected us directly, but they do affect how far a dollar to the Honnold Foundation actually goes. And I think too, like, I mean, Alex will sometimes say like he likes funding solar in places that are not receptive to it because it's like a screw you to like the government bodies that are like not making it easy for people. And so I don't think that a shift in the cost is going to shift our willingness to fund it. But I mean, it, it has had an impact for sure. How long is a project like the one in Puerto Rico expected to take? The producer of that film asked me that question this morning. And the answer is we're going to know in a couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> but uh Honestly, I think that it's probably, I mean, this is like another crystal ball question. I'm optimistic that um, we will be starting to install things before the end of the year. Um, it certainly should not, we certainly should have it done before the next hurricane season starts. But this whole initial period of like talking to people and figuring out what they really need and like managing community dynamics, like that stuff takes a long time. And because it took us a while to get Cynthia on the ground, we've kind of, it's taking a little bit longer than we thought it would, but we're still on track. So the question was whether the impact of doing solar projects in rural areas would be more or less significant than doing solar projects in bigger metropolitan areas. Like ridiculously, the answer to your question is both and. They just have different impacts. So the classic way that people talk about it and really like the roots of the foundation are like, we used to fund a lot of solar lantern work um, in sub-Saharan Africa. And for those families, like it's not really massive environmental impact. Like if you had one kerosene lantern in your hut, like you're not the reason why the world's falling apart, but it's gonna have a really positive impact on your life to not be burning kerosene indoors. Cause that's like smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. 
So there the impact is really mostly human, whereas like we also fund work with grid alternatives in California. And there we're talking about putting solar on the homes of families who may have like an electric vehicle. And so for them, it's like whether or not they have solar panels on their roof isn't going to be what, you know, determines whether or not they can like afford school fees for their kids. But it does have a bigger environmental impact because you're offsetting more power. And so we've always kind of thought of it as like a diversified portfolio. We fund lots of different things and they meet lots of different goals. Um, and so, and honestly, that's one of the ways that I explain to people why it's worth it to fund us and not just our partners directly. Because if you give us 10 bucks, a couple of dollars might go to support a solar lantern project, a couple might go to support work in Sacramento. So you're able to address all those different things simultaneously. I think that the cool thing about solar is that it scales really well. Like it's super useful in Puerto Rico. Utility scale solar is not something we fund, but it also has massive impacts. Um, you can kind of like change it to fit the scenario. So all of the above. Is the foundation involved with trying to reduce the costs of solar technology and solar panels? No, we don't fund research. Um, and if you ask Alex why, he will say, I want to put panels on houses, the end. Um, which uh, I like to say we like to put panels on houses and we want to make sure that the people in the houses couldn't have afforded them otherwise. Like we want to be giving those panels to the people who need them. Um, that's an evolution of the original Honnold, let's put panels on houses ethos. Um, but I don't see us funding research really at any point. There are a lot of really great research funders out there, um, but it's not really our wheelhouse. Is there educational work going on in these communities? Yes, but we don't do it. Um, so the Honnold Foundation, we provide project management services. We provide a storytelling spotlight like that, like that film, but we don't do direct services. Like I only touch solar panels when it's like for show in a video. Um, and so we're not the right people to provide educational resources. Like it doesn't make any sense for me to show up in Adjuntas and be like, hey, have you guys heard the good news about solar? Like that's not, I'm not who that information should be coming from. Um, that said, a lot of the nonprofits that we fund do a lot of educational work. Grid, who I mentioned earlier, does really cool education programming. Um, their North Valley office, again, is about to launch this whole sort of like education and outreach program around electric vehicles. Um, the city's doing this like voucher program to help get people into EVs. And Grid are the people who are teaching people why they might want to do that. So education is a big part of the work that we support, but we don't do it directly. On the subject of listening to people's needs, have you ever had a project where the community you're working with doesn't think they need or doesn't want solar? It's a really good question. And um, no, but it's because of selection bias. <laughs> like, I think probably a good example for that is um, GRID's tribal program. So GRID Alternatives has a tribal office. They do a lot of work on the Navajo Nation, but they do a lot of work with different tribal nations um, all over the Americas. And um, I am sure that they run into challenges where people say like, I don't think we need this. I don't think it's worth it. Um, but again, like we're not the ones who have that conversation. Grid Tribal like has the accountability and the community relationships to figure out who wants things and like make sure that the people who want the products actually get them. Um, it's never me or Alex or another person who doesn't know the community showing up and being like, yo, like, do you guys want a microgrid? Um, and similarly, like you look at Adjuntas and like Arturo, who you saw in the video, I don't know if you guys noticed, but there was in one of the drone shots, you could see solar panels on the roof of that pink house, Casa Pueblo. They've had solar for like a decade. Um, and in Adjuntas, when Hurricane Maria happened, like all the lights went out except for at Casa Pueblo. And so everybody in that town like gets it. Like they experienced a natural disaster. They know what happens when the power goes out. They know what solar does. And like that for us is like, 
obviously it would be better if no one knew that because it would mean that Maria didn't happen and the power didn't go out for months. But a community like that, like that's a place where it's really easy for us to show up and support an initiative. So, I mean, it exists, but like because we don't do direct services, we don't really touch it directly. For someone who might be interested in your position, I mean, it wasn't even a position like <laughs> yours, it was your position. Uh, any advice for how to take you out, I think is the way. I mean, if you can be better at this than me, hit me up. Like yeah. I'm not, I like, I got no ego around it. But I, I think that maybe a better, the question that I would actually like to answer is how to not get a job like mine. And an email that I get probably like once a week is a 500 word personal essay on everything that I've ever done in my whole life. It's like, well, when I was born, this happened. And then it's like this whole narrative. And then at the end, it's like, let me know what I can do to help. And my answer to that is like, I'm going to archive this email because I have a hundred things to do. And like, I don't even know where to begin with this personal narrative. And I think that like, as someone, I think that most people who run nonprofits are like in a constant state of panic that they're never going to get through their inbox. And the emails that I respond to are the ones where it's like, hey, like I've read a lot about your organization. I feel like I understand what you do. I think you could do this better. I want to help you with this thing. This is the skill I have that I think you could put to use. And like, this is how I want to do it. Will you let me? And I'm like, sure. Hell yeah. Go nuts. Like fix that problem. I think it's a problem too. I think that looking at the organization with a critical eye instead of just like um, a sort of like laudatory one is much more compelling to me because it's like, I don't really need to know that we're doing things well and that you want to be a part of it because that doesn't move the organization forward. What I do want to know is like, I want somebody on the team who's like, yo, this is the thing you could do better. I can be good at that. Can I help? That I think is way more helpful than a sort of like broad expression of enthusiasm. Cause like, that's awesome that people are psyched. Um, but that puts the onus on the organization to figure out what they should do with you. And I think that, I mean, even if they say no, it's kind of a fun thought exercise to be like, huh, like, I wonder if I'm right about this. Like, is this a problem? Do you think it's a problem? So yeah, I think tell us what we're doing wrong and tell us how we can fix it is like a universal recommendation. That's really good advice. When you've already talked about we're in this position of kind of the explosion and there's a whole lot going on, how do you even go about identifying weaknesses or holes, potential areas to fix? Is there a system to that? Or is it a bit more like, what do we happen to notice uh, while everything is flying past us at 300 miles an hour? Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's a system. I wish that the answer was like, I have an awesome system. Here's the system, like take it and use it and like be happy and healthy. That's not really the way. Like a good example is that like, we need to make a grant to one of our international partners. And up until a year ago, this is sort of wonky, but we were a donor advised fund of another foundation, which meant we weren't responsible for our own tax paperwork. Um, but now we're an independent 501c3, so we have to do everything ourselves. And I'm like, oh, like we have to send money to that organization. I have to figure out how to make an international grant without getting the door broken down by the IRS for funding terrorism. So then I figure out how to do that, and then we do it. So there's like a lot of that where it's like you solve the problems as they emerge because like it's so hard to get out in front of things because there's so many. Um, some of it is more proactive than that. Like we know that certain things are coming down the pipe. Like our sales force build out is a response to like a long lasting need to understand our donor base better. Um, so some of it's proactive. My goal for 2019 was to be less reactive and more proactive. And I'm like 70% on that maybe. Um, but I think that as the organization matures, it'll be a little bit easier to see things coming. 
Um, and like, we've only had a, we've had a board for less than a year. Like as we build, like as our bench gets a little bit deeper and like we have more people around us who are like advising us as we grow, it gets a little bit easier to like see the holes before we like fall into them. I think we're going to give Marcel Proust the last question, but we will then wrap. And then as always, um, I invite you and encourage you to come say hi to Dory, ask further questions. Um, we'll be around. And once again, great questions. So thank you for those. But one of Proust's questions is, what is your motto? And I've been told that Dory's into mottos. So I've, I wanted to get this question in. Um, I have so many. I love mottos. I recently, which is perhaps a testament to how alarmed I am by the explosion, I've been spending a lot of time with Hold Fast, All Storms Pass, which is a Conrad Anker classic. Mm -hmm. And then a variant on it, which I heard recently, which is that everything passes, even the good things, which sounds a little bit dark, but like, <laughs> I think it's like a useful frame. It's like, whatever's happening is temporary. Like everything is temporary. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good is like a timeless classic that I think we could all learn a lot from. And then another favorite of mine, which I used to use mostly in climbing, but which I think is like a good thing whenever you're doing something challenging is just, this is what you came for. Like when you're struggling super hard or like cruxing or like having like a good sports cry on a route that's like a little bit too hard. It's like, this is what you came for. It's like, this is what you wanted. Like you chose this. And I think that that's a really good reminder. And like, it's good in the good times too. Just that like, I think that challenge is really educational and that um, you've kind of got to like, you got to try hard in order to get anything out of it. Man, I got to say of all the sports, really, I think climbing really is the best in terms of the analogy for mm. starting anything new, you know, bang your head against the wall, figure it out, you know, really like that's called climbing. Like that's just what it is. And so maybe a bit too on the nose, but uh, turns out that, uh, you know, an organization of rock climbers, I think I'm willing to wager that you guys will keep figuring out the crux moves. And uh, it's been remarkable. I mean, I, I personally think that, I mean, honest, I've said this before, like, I don't really care what Alex did on the wall, except it was such a colossal moment in terms of human performance. So that matters maybe a little, but I think if he'd never, you know, if he was a 5'10 climber, what he has shown and his willingness to personally pitch in and donate to causes that he believes in, to educate himself, and as his platform grows and continues to grow, to educate all of us on some of the things that really matter to him and as he pretty openly and honestly is going through the world, trying to figure things out as best he can. I think that's all remarkable and I think what you have articulated well tonight about your role in coming to give shape and a bit more form and structure to this extremely well-intentioned work coupled with this wave of fame. It's, it's a remarkable moment. So I'm sure like all of you here and those listening to this, mostly we're just super interested to see where this all goes. And I hope that we now have a bit of a better sense of how we can maybe pitch in or contribute. And I don't know if you want to leave a final word there. If, if the most helpful thing right now is financial donations, maybe we end with that. Like what can we be doing to be of most value to support the work of the Honold Foundation? Yeah, I mean, 
Financial contributions are always great. What I always say, though, is that like as the executive director, it's my job to tell you to give us money. But also on some level, I just want to see everybody giving their money away more often. Um, I think like Alex living in his van, giving away a third of his income is like a valuable lesson to us all that like it doesn't take that much to be able to to give charitable contributions to organizations you care about. And like it means something. It has a huge impact. So like that, give money to us or somebody, but like give money to things you care about. Um, if you think we could be doing something better and you can help us do it, send me an email. Um, don't send me a 500 word personal essay. We can do that later. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think talking to people about what we do is really powerful too. We're finally to the point that I think most folks don't think the Honol Foundation is like Alex's like youth climbing initiative. Um, but helping people understand that like we're supporting solar energy and this is why can be really powerful. Um, so yeah, I think like give us money if you want to, give somebody else money if you want to do that, talk about our work. And um, if you think you can do something better than we're doing it, let me know. Fantastic. Dory Trimble, thank you so much. This yeah, has been thank a pleasure. You. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to everyone who came out to Western and to everyone who, once again, asked such good questions. And thanks to Dory Trimble for all of her work at the Honold Foundation and for sharing with us her insight and perspective. And if you'd like to learn more about or make a donation to the Honold Foundation, just go to honoldfoundation.org. We made a donation to the foundation on behalf of everyone at Blister and the Gunnison Valley, and we would encourage you to support their good work too. And again, next month for the Blister Speaker Series, our guest will be Luke Jacobson, the CEO of Moment Skis, and that will take place on Tuesday, November 5th at 7 p.m. at Western. So be sure to come out and come join us. Thanks, everybody. Now, please take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.